Now, we have talked about Renaissance, Renaissance music in one of the sessions before in this seminar, and um, I have already given you some of the, some of the basic elements of uh, Renaissance music. For example, the fact that most Renaissance music is vocal polyphonic, a cappella, meaning unaccompanied. Uh, the fact that very, very rare use of dissonance. Um, music is very consonant. Uh, when dissonance is used, it is always uh, very carefully and strictly controlled. Um, also, music is often described as being serene, being calm, harmonious, controlled, well-balanced. Uh, some of the major composers of the Renaissance period would be the ones I have mentioned, uh, listed here. And uh, let me uh, play for you an example of Renaissance music that will summarize some of these points. All of those elements that I just described, I think you can hear somewhat in that excerpt by Pierre Delarue. Now, we go from that musical aesthetic to a very dramatically different music aesthetic once we enter the early Baroque period. Before we start to talk about some of these specifics, uh, just a bit of chronology here, Baroque music. Uh, your textbook chronology will tell you that it goes from about 1600 to 1750. If I were to ask you, name some of the main Baroque composers, I think a lot of you would probably first think of composers from the later Baroque period. Uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, or Vivaldi, or Telemann, or Pachelbel, or Handel. Um, and, um, but we can really think about Baroque music as falling into an early Baroque period that is about a century long, uh, and the main composers, uh, among others, would be Caccini, Monteverdi, Schutz, Dowland, and late Baroque, uh, 50 years from about 1700 to 1750, with some of the main composers that I'm sure many of you would come up with um, when you think about Baroque music in general. Um, so the transition, though, that we are talking about uh, is uh, really uh, something that is uh, uh, pertinent to the early Baroque period, and that's what I will be talking about today. Um, I always preface what I'm about to say by saying that it is not my personal bias to say that a lot of these innovations, a lot of these changes that take place come from Italy. Uh, and it has to do in many ways... Uh, it has to do with the political structure of Italy in the Renaissance into the Baroque period. Italy was not unified until 1861. So in this earlier period, Italy is really nothing more than a conglomeration of city-states. And you have some of those uh, on this map here. Uh, in the south, the huge kingdom of Naples. Uh, in the north, very influential, very powerful states such as the Republic of Venice and so forth. Uh, today, in my discussion, I will be focusing primarily on, in, on three of these areas, uh, Florence and uh, Mantua, and then a little bit of Venice if we have time. Um, so we start with Florence, and we have talked a bit before in the seminar about the Florentine Camerata. I introduced the idea behind the Florentine Camerata. Essentially, um, it was a group of intellectuals who gathered in Florence between the years of 1575 and circa uh, 1592 to discuss science and the arts. And we just had two lectures on the history of science. So you've heard a lot about the discussions by Galileo and others. A lot of that was taking place in Florence. Uh, Galileo, after all, was a Florentine, was very much influential. Uh, now, Galileo lived a little bit after this. But actually, his uncle, Vincenzo Galileo, was a member of the Florentine Camerata. Um, they, they re revisited the platonic idea that music must be able to express strong human emotion. And of all of the elements they discussed, this was probably the most important uh, element that they underscored in all of their gatherings. 
Uh, and this idea that music and the arts must express, uh, express strong human emotion really led to the development of uh, a, a new musical style and also new musical genres, especially the birth of opera, which is what I'll be focusing on today. Um, they met at the palace of Count Giovanni Bardi, and this is actually a uh, photo of the palace as it stands today in Florence. It's a beautiful palace. There's now private apartments in there. Uh, and what you have on the uh, right-hand side is uh, one of the, of the uh, halls of this palace and where we think perhaps the Florentine Camerata members met. Um, and again, I listed some of the main members, uh, the Count Giovanni Bardi, uh, Giulio Caccini, and we'll be talking about his music a little bit soon, and then again, Vincenzo Galilei, the uncle of uh, Galileo Galilei, the famous astronomer. Two quotes that I shared with you before. I think it's a good uh, point of departure for our discussion. One is from the ancient Greek world, from Aristotle. And I could have picked something by Plato that would have been very similar. Um, and I have highlighted some of the key words and key phrases in this quote. Music must have an influence if characters are affected by it. And that they are so affected is proved in many ways, and not least by the power that the songs exercise. When men hear music, even apart from the rhythms and tunes themselves, their feelings move in sympathy. For in listening to such strains, our souls undergo a change. That idea of music having power is absolutely central, absolutely um, at the basis of uh, what Aristotle and Plato argue. Uh, now, contrast that with a quote from, uh, by Vincenzo Galilei, um, a member of the Florentine Camerata. It appears to be clear that, that, that the music of the ancients was a single melody and a single air, however many or few voices were singing. It should not seem strange if it had such lively effects in moving the affections of others. So not only the idea of the power of music, but I think the big question was how can we create a style and a texture that will convey that power? And the best way of doing that, the members of the Florentine Camerata concluded, was to come up with a style that was a single melody. And that is a kind of texture, a kind of style that we know as monody, a single vocal line accompanied by instruments. Um, so I mentioned that Giulio Caccini was a member of the Florentine Camerata. And uh, in 1600, he published an extremely influential set of songs, of madrigals, that he entitled Le Nuove Musiche. Uh, really showing uh, that he was very much aware of the fact that he was writing music in a new style. The new musical pieces is the translation. Um, now, I would like to point out something quite interesting here. And that is, if you look at this score, and if you don't read music, that's fine too. You can just see this visually. Um, how many lines do you see? Well, there are two lines. Uh, for the music, right? One on the very top and then one right below that. The line on the top is the vocal line, is the melody that is to be performed by a singer, obviously. And then right below that uh, is the bass, the bass line. Now this kind of texture, which again is basically monody, uh, becomes not only the standard texture, but becomes really one of the basic elements of Baroque music. When you listen to Baroque music, whether it's early Baroque music or later Baroque music, what is really foundational is the fact that all of the attention is on the melody and on the bass. What happens in the middle uh, are kind of filler uh, notes, almost. I'm simplifying a bit here. but um, So the melody and the bass. Uh, and it is up to you as the performer, then, to take that bass and to so-called realize the bass, meaning you would go to a piano, you would look at those bass notes, and then you would add chords on top of that bass line. And in fact, if you take a look at a modern transcription of the original print from 1600, or 1601, actually, uh, that's exactly what you see. That's still the melody, 
That's the baseline. But then they have added um, the right hand uh, for those chords. And let's listen to this together. So unlike the texture we heard earlier with Renaissance music, where, we, where you had four vocal lines, each one treated very much equally, there's a dramatic shift that has occurred in just a few years, because now all of the attention is on that solo singer, and the accompaniment is just there to support uh, the voice. Okay. Now, um, I mentioned um, Caccini, and there's another composer I want to mention who was in that circle, that Florentine Camerata circle, also worked in Florence, uh, also wrote music in a monodic style, and that is Jacopo Peri, uh, who in 1600 uh, writes and subsequently publishes what some consider to be one of the very first experiments at opera at this new genre of opera. When you think about opera, it makes sense that opera would be created in this early 17th century period because it has all of the elements, you know, this idea of music having power. That's really what opera is all about. It's about conveying strong human emotions. And whether you are listening to Wagner or to Verdi or Puccini, that is one of the basic elements of opera, certainly. Um, and also this idea of music that is of, uh, in a new monodic texture. And most of the musical pieces in an opera, arias and so forth, are solo vocal pieces. Um, so Jacopo Peri writes this uh, quasi-opera, if you will, uh, based on the Orpheus myth. It's called Le Musiche Sopra l'Euridice, the music on the myth of Euridice and Orpheus, you could add. Uh, and it's interesting that three of the earliest operas ever created in the history of music are on the Orpheus myth. And why might that be? I know music students have the answer already. I'm wondering about others out there. Why, why is the Orpheus myth so appealing to these early 17th century opera composers? Yes. Exactly, exactly. Orpheus, uh, when you look at Greek mythology, is really the uh, demigod of music. And so what better subject than music? Um, and we'll talk about that in a second, uh, a bit, bit more in a second. But here is the opening of this first quasi-opera, if you will, Peri's Euridice, published in Florence in 1600. And this is the very opening of that. here, we are at this point in the music, which is marked Ritornello. So two things to point out here. First of all, um, the fact that the notation that we were just talking about, all you have is the vocal line, and that's where all of your attention is, really, on that singer. And the bass line. And then everything else you heard in the harpsichord is so-called realized figured bass. Uh, and that will vary. Each recording will be different because it's up to you, the performer, to know what to do with those bass notes. The other thing I wanted to uh, point out is the fact that we have a section of this score uh, labeled ritornello. And in Italian, the verb ritornare means to come back. And that is a little um, instrumental interlude or section, if you will, that keeps coming back 
throughout this opening um, number, opening um, aria of the, of the opera. Uh, but I want you to notice that there is no indication of who should perform that ritornello. You see that? I mean, here you heard flutes. I could have picked another recording where they may have had violins. I could have picked another recording where the harpsichordist plays the ritornello. So Peri does not specify anything about orchestration. We know that the harpsichord is a given. It was customary to have the harpsichord accompany uh, a vocalist. But then other instruments, your guess is as good as anyone's. And I'm mentioning this because we will be talking about Monteverdi and what he does along those lines. Okay, speaking of Monteverdi, great segue here. Um, I want to now focus for the rest of the lecture pretty much on uh, Claudio Monteverdi. When I mentioned earlier Beethoven as one of the key composers in the transition and the change between classical and romantic, we can think of Monteverdi as the great innovator, the great um, spirit, musical spirit behind the transition from Renaissance to early Baroque. Um, and uh, just a little tiny bit about his biography. He worked in three Italian cities, uh, mostly in Venice, uh, which was his uh, last appointment. But he was born in Cremona. Then he moved to Mantua, where he was employed by the uh, Gonzaga court, um, the, the dukes of, uh, of um, Mantua. And then he moved to Venice for the last 30 years of his life, where he was employed as uh, Maestro di Capella, Capellmeister at the Basilica of St. Mark, which was probably the one, it was one of the two most prestigious jobs in all of Europe, uh, together with perhaps working at the Vatican in those years. Um, so again, he's born in Cremona, which is not indicated in the map, but up here near Modena, and then he, um, uh, traveled to Mantua, and he was there in the Duchy of Mantua, and then up to the Republic of Venice uh, for the last 30 years of his life. Monteverdi is most known for two musical genres. One is opera, and we'll talk about that. Uh, the other are, uh, uh, is the genre of the madrigal. And he wrote hundreds of madrigals, which he published in nine books, some quite early in his career, 1587 is the earliest, and the last one published in 1638, and he dies in 1643, and then the last book published uh, uh, posthumously in uh, 1651. Now, the ones I have marked in red are marked in red for a reason. Those are probably, of all these nine books, the most influential, the most important, the ones that exhibit various innovations which we don't have time to talk about today, uh, but we will be looking at an example, for example, from book eight and, uh, and so on. So just keep in mind that there are some books uh, among this list that are perhaps most influential and most important for various reasons. What is most interesting about Monteverdi's madrigals is that all of these new ideas, new musical styles that he starts to work with and starts to experiment with are first uh, experimented with in that context, in, in the madrigal. So before he starts to um, experiment with ideas in the context of opera or in the context of sacred music, uh, he tries out some of these ideas in the context of the madrigals. And I have a few examples that I want to uh, play and share with you uh, that give you a sense of some of the very different kinds of styles that he works with. Um, the first is Si Chio Borre Morire, which I'm sure some music majors here are familiar with, yes. Um, a very interesting madrigal, probably one of the most erotic madrigals ever written. Just take a look at the text, and I think you will understand what I mean. Um, but it's not only erotic uh, in terms of text, but what he does with the music underscores the eroticism. And that's one of the geniuses of Monteverdi, that he's always conscious of what the text does. You know, remember we talked about this once before, the prima pratica, the seconda pratica. The seconda pratica was that uh, concept where you know, he said, text is absolutely central. Everything that happens in music has to be 
in relation to the text. And you have examples of that in these madrigals, and this is a good one. So uh, I just um, sort of highlighted here some of the key phrases. Uh, and you will see what he does in the music to highlight uh, those uh, textual ideas. Um, so, oh dear sweet tongue, give me so many moist kisses that from their sweetness in this breast may I perish. So let's see how he sets this. And I'm going to try to talk uh, on top of the music a little bit. Do notice one thing um, for certain, and that is that when we get to the words may I perish, the music kind of comes down as if it's dying. Uh, and that's a good word painting or text painting device, if you will. Here's the oh dear. Hear all that dissonance. to the perishing text. Okay, we're going to stop that there. Um, so, so just a really great example of how Monteverdi is able to express that text. Um, and I think he's trying to express uh, erotic rapture, if you will, uh, in this section here that I have bracketed. And then that may I perish and everything kind of comes downward um, almost as if he is trying to portray this sense of uh, you know, exhaustion or death. Okay, uh, moving on to another madrigal from the seventh book, uh, published in 1619, very different very, very different style. Very light, very bouncy. Okay, and then the, the uh, vocal line comes in eventually. But you hear that, uh, that you know, extremely bouncy, extremely light um, kind of style. Um, we're going to try to make this louder. Do you want to try now? Okay, great. So why don't you do that as I play the file? One more example uh, is this one here, which is actually a uh, ballet. Oh, it's on there. Monte pervalli, bellissima glori, già corrono, corrono, corrono a pali, le nuove passioni. Monte pervalli, bellissima glori, già corrono, corrono, corrono a pali, le nuove passioni. Gialletta, gialletta. 
Okay, so yet another example. This is a madrigal that is uh, meant to be danced to. It's a, it's a, it's a dance madrigal. Um, so yet, you know, much contrast with some of the, uh, certainly that first uh, erotic um, madrigal that we heard earlier. Um, and then finally, we talked uh, once before in this class about the lament of the nymph, so I'm not going to play uh, this uh, uh Play too much of this, but here is one other aspect that I want to. Oh, you need to turn that off, please. That I want to talk about, and that is in the eighth book of Madrigals, and that was one of the book of Madrigals that I had highlighted uh, because of its importance in the history of music. In that eighth book of Madrigals, Monteverdi um, starts thinking about Madrigals as almost dramatic pieces, quasi-dramatic uh, pieces of music, almost like scenes from operas. And this is very unusual because a madrigal is usually not performed. Uh, it's not staged, it's not acted, it's not performed dramatically. But Monteverdi, being the great dramatist that he is, starts to think of the madrigals along those lines. Uh, and he starts to give directions, very much like you would give directions in an opera, directions to the performers. Here is how he introduces uh, his Lament of the Nymph. Uh, he says, this song should be performed as follows. The three voices that sing separately from the nymph are placed thus apart because they have to keep strict time. The three whose sympathetic comments accompany the nymph's plaint have their parts integral to the score as they must follow her temple, governed by the emotions expressed and not by the conductor's beat. So in other words, he's saying, the nymph should be very free in her singing. And the three male voices that accompany her and that introduce her should keep a strict tempo, but they should then also follow the nymph as she sings uh, because her singing is governed by emotion. So again, this concept of the music, the music having power, music being able to really... Um, really uh, um, convey strong emotional feeling. Um, so you might be wondering, okay, if these madrigals are performed dramatically, where might they have been performed? And we know that some of the, some of the madrigals from the eighth book were performed in Venice, um, in the uh, Mocenigo Palace, which is now the super luxurious uh, Daniele Hotel, and one of my dreams in life is to spend one night, just one night, at the Daniele Palace. I was actually looking at their website over the weekend to get some of these images, and a room is only $1,600 a night. Yeah. So, but this is the super luxurious Daniele Palace, which was the Mocenigo, um, um, the Mocenigo Palace in Venice, and that's where some of these Monteverdi madrigals were performed. Uh, we don't know exactly in which of these lavish rooms, but somewhere. Uh, and some of the other madrigals, which we're not going to discuss too much today, but some of the other madrigals were actually acted out to the point that in one of them you had a horse, an actual horse, entering um, the room. And in, in another one you had a battle, an actual duel between two characters. That's the Combattimento di Tancredi e Clorinda. So really not madrigals, but more little scenes from operas in many ways. Now, even today, um, you will find performers, uh, performers who know what they're doing, try to experiment with this concept of performing these madrigals as dramatic pieces and not just, you know, here I am, I'm going to sing the madrigal. Um, and I found two very interesting clips from uh, the Internet and I'm going to just play a little bit more of the first one and just very, uh, just a few seconds worth of the second. But here is the Lament of the Nymph. Um, and in the first excerpt, which is by a wonderful uh, European early music ensemble called Le Pont des Arts, uh, it's uh, either Belgian or French, I'm not exactly sure. But uh, they perform it, again, with this kind of, you know, a little bit of dramatic action. Uh, the one thing I will urge you is to ignore the conductor. I don't know what he is doing. You will see what I'm talking about. I have never seen anyone conduct that way. I don't know what 
is behind it. But the singing is very nicely done. And uh, some of the um, action, I think, is very interesting as well. Don't ask. Notice the dissonance coming up. Um, I think the point has been made here. Um, now, you know, we could uh, argue the, the strengths and weaknesses of this performance. The singing is quite nice. The conducting, I don't know what is going on with that. Um, any conductors in the room? <laughs> Just ignore it. <laughs> but I think, you know, it, it points to the fact that there are performances out there in this world uh, where the performers are conscious of the fact that Monteverdi intended this madrigal to be somewhat staged and somewhat uh, performed in a dramatic uh, fashion. Uh, there's better and worse performances of that, but it's certainly something that should be attempted if at all possible. Um, the other excerpt, I'm just going to play a few seconds worth, but I just uh, had to share this with you. It is a, um, a folk performance of The Lament of the Nymph. just of the nymph part without the three male singers in the beginning. It's always nice to see that Monteverdi is, uh, you know, well and alive, even in the world of uh, folk music. This is uh, a uh, Canadian ensemble. All right. Now, uh, we're going to shift gears a little bit. We're going to...
uh, stop talking about the madrigals, and we're going to start talking a bit about Monteverdi's contribution to the birth of opera. And for that, we have to move uh, to Mantua and talk about Mantua a little bit. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Monteverdi was employed by the Duke of uh, Mantua, the Gonzaga family, for many years. Um, and uh, basically, his job was to provide music for entertainment at the court of Mantua. Now, this music, therefore, was performed at the Ducal Palace, and you have some images here. Um, how many of you have been to Mantua? It's not really on the tourist track, unfortunately, but it's a beautiful city worth seeing, and the Ducal Palace is a fascinating place to be. You see how large the complex is. Uh, now, there have been lots of additions uh, throughout the centuries, but it's just a fabulous place to visit. Um, the inside of the Ducal Palace uh, has frescoes and paintings by some of the most important European artists, uh, including uh, Andrea Mantegna uh, from the 15th century, the famous uh, Camera degli Sposi, the bridal chamber, and then uh, uh, Peter Paul Rubens uh, was actually in Mantua for a few years at the court of the Duke. And this is a wonderful painting of uh, Vincenzo II Gonzaga uh, from 1604-1605. Um, we talked about Peri's Leuridice, which was performed in Florence in 1600. And one, another aspect you need to keep in mind is that in the Renaissance and into the early Baroque period, there was a lot of competition between some of these Italian city-states. So the people in Mantua were always competing against the ones in Ferrara, who were competing with the Florentines, and so on. So word was getting up to the Duke of Mantua that the Florentines down there, down south, are doing a lot of really interesting things. And they're coming up with a whole brand new style of music that is staged, is performed dramatically, and so on and so on. So I think the Duke of Mantua was getting a little bit jealous, a little bit envious, I should say. And... Um, in 1607, he turned to his court composer, to Monteverdi, and he said, you know, Claudio, maybe it's time to write something in the style of what the Florentines are doing. Uh, and he had a big party coming up for the uh, carnival season. Uh, the party was set for 24 February 1607. And he said to Claudio Monteverdi, why don't you write something for that? And Monteverdi writes an opera. He writes L'Orfeo. Uh, again, the myth of Orpheus is the, is the subject for his opera. Now, I want to remind you of the opening of uh, Peri's L'Euridice, the opera from 1600. Okay, so that's fine. That's the opening. But how many of you are anxious to go out there and buy the CD? Right now, or right after this seminar. Okay. Uh, nothing wrong. Oh, you are, Paris? Okay. Good. Perfectly fine. Nothing wrong with that. But now compare the opening of Monteverdi's opera. Okay? The very opening. So a very different dramatic effect. Really, the purpose of that opening is to grab your attention. Two purposes, actually. One is to grab your attention. The second, we think that the Duke would have entered the chamber to that music. Uh, so it's the grand entrance of the Duke as well as a great attention grabber. Today, when we go to opera, we go to beautiful theaters. 
we go to beautiful opera houses, or we go to Eisenhower Auditorium or Schwab. That's fine, too. But we're used to large concert venues. Um, the idea of a public opera house was something that did not come into the musical landscape until 1638 uh, with the opening of the Teatro San Cassiano in Venice. So in this earlier period, and certainly with Monteverdi's L'Orfeo, opera was performed in the private chamber of a uh, aristocrat. And we don't know exactly, there's been a lot of uh, debate, a lot of research um, uh, behind, uh, you know, as um, on to which room of the Ducal Palace would have hosted the original performance of Monteverdi's L'Orfeo. Uh, this may have been one of the halls. This is the Sala degli Specchi, the Gallery of Mirrors. And um, I always uh, tell my students when I teach Monteverdi that one of the great, great musical moments of my life was uh, in the early 90s when I went to Mantua for the first time. I had never been to Mantua, so I took the train up to Mantua from Florence. And I get off the train, and the first thing I see is a poster, Monteverdi's L'Orfeo to be performed in the Ducal Palace, a recreation of the, of the first performance of 1607. And guess where I went? <laughs> Straight to the ticket office. Uh, to buy a ticket. And uh, I had the great, great privilege uh, to hear a recreation of the first performance from 1607 in this hall right here. Uh, and it was just a magical experience. But what struck me was the fact that it's a pretty small hall. You only fit about 100 people. So this great music, this 90-minute opera, just for the entertainment of a few aristocrats, uh, of no more than 100 um, people on February 24th of 1607. Okay. Um, now, we heard the very opening of Orfeo, the so-called toccata, which is very much uh, functioning as a fanfare, attention-grabbing. The next piece that you hear in this opera, uh, which, by the way, some of our School of Music students performed recently as well as last fall as part of the Apollo's Fire residency, uh, is the prologue. And the first character to walk on stage is the character of music. Now, that is significant. And we'll look at something in the text that will really emphasize the significance of this. Um, I know the text is a bit fuzzy, but I would like you to follow along. Um, we're just going to play the first uh, two stanzas of this. And focus especially on the second stanza when we get to it.
Okay, so that second stanza, it's almost a musical manifesto of everything the Florentine Camerata had been discussing, right? I am music, who in sweet accents can calm each troubled heart, and now with noble anger, now with love, can kindle the most frigid minds. Um, I, I have power, is what she's saying. I am music, here I am, I'm the first character to walk out on this stage. This is a momentous occasion, it's the first real opera masterpiece unfolding in front of your eyes, and the whole story is about the power of music. What does Orpheus do? What's the myth of Orpheus? Orpheus uh, goes into Hades, into the kingdom of the dead, if you will, to rescue his beloved Eurydice, to do something that no mortal human being had been allowed to do. And it is through his singing and through his playing, through the power of music, that he is able to do that. So no wonder these composers, Caccini, Peri, and Monteverdi, are all relying on the myth of Orpheus. But Monteverdi goes a step further. He says, not only am I going to rely on the myth, I'm going to put the character of music as the very first character on that stage. And she is going to tell you, in the second stanza, what music is all about, what the function of music really is. Many consider L'Ofeo to be the first real opera in the history of music. I am one of those proponents, as my students know. Um, but even if you want to take the more conservative side and say, well, okay, maybe it's not the first real opera, but it's certainly the first operatic masterpiece. In other words, you can consider Caccini's Euridice or Peri's Euridice to be operas as well, but this is really the first big, important operatic masterpiece in the history of music. So the question is why? When you think about opera, uh, what are some of the key ingredients of an opera? I'm going to ask you right now. Give me two really key, really important ingredients. You can think of Verdi, you can think of Wagner, you can think of Puccini, Mozart, huh? Okay, there's a story, there's a plot, there's dramatic action, certainly. What makes a good opera a good opera? Emotion, okay? Emotion, a strong feelings, emotion, dramatic action, all of those things. So I think um, all of these elements, and we could keep going down the list, are present in Monteverdi's opera. First of all, the length. Caccini, Peri were about 20 minutes long. So can you really call that an opera? Um, L'Ofeo is a full 90 minutes long. So the length is a factor as well. The size of the orchestra. Um, remember that in Peri and in Caccini, both of those composers never specify the instruments um, that they want. Monteverdi is very specific. And he calls for as many as 30 separate instruments. Now, he's not using those instruments all together all the time. He's using them almost like a painter would use a palette of colors. Uh, so he wants a flute because that produces a bright sound. He wants uh, a trombone because that produces a darker, more somber sound. Uh, but he's very specific. He takes, he leaves nothing for, uh, for chance, if that's the right expression. Um, use of different styles and textures. Aria, recitative, chorus, and we'll look at some examples of this. Orchestration. Um, again, instruments used for dramatic effect. And finally, a superb sense of drama. And we could talk about this for hours, and we don't have time, but just keep that in mind. And great character development. That's, I think, another key ingredient in a good opera, whether it's Don Giovanni, whether it's La Boheme, whether it's one of the Wagner operas. Character development is one of the ingredients in, uh, in a great opera. So let's think about this uh, use of different musical styles and textures. Uh, the first is uh, the aria, and here we have a beautiful aria by Orfeo, very lyrical.
Um, so an aria is a musical uh, number, musical piece that is very lyrical, of a very strong sense of lines, sense of melody, and I think that's pretty obvious there. Contrast that with what would be considered to be a pastoral song, very light, very dance-like. Really makes you want to move. And finally, uh, something that we call a recitative in music, which is very, uh, very speech-like, almost like um, like um, uh, speech that you know that is sung, speech-like. Um, very static, not as lyrical as the aria was. Find the last example, uh, chorus. He uses choruses a lot in his operas. And this could be a um, reference to the Greek chorus. After all, he's writing an opera on a Greek myth, and he uses these choruses throughout the opera at appropriate points in the dramatic action. <laughs> about the instruments. The instruments used for dramatic effect. Um, acts one and two of the opera are set in the world of the living versus acts three and four, which are set in uh, Hades, in the world of the dead. Uh, and he uses instruments to show the contrast between these two worlds, the two worlds of Monteverdi and of Orfeo. Uh, so for acts one and two, he relies on bright instruments. Uh, flutes and woodwinds and um, uh, lots of uh, string instruments. And here's an example of that. We just heard this. Uh, versus the low instruments used in the um, dark and somber acts of the opera. And this is a great example. Um, at one point, there is a character uh, called Caronte, or Sharon. Sharon is the boat keeper. He's a very nasty figure in this opera, a very uh, dark, very mysterious figure. And um, Monteverdi always associates that character with a particular kind of organ known as a regale, or a regal, uh, which has a very uh, nasal, very reedy kind of sound. <laughs> It isn't, but it has that kind of, you know, that type of sound. Um, okay, now um, I'm going to try to wrap this up quickly here, but one more, uh, a few more things I want to discuss. The, uh, the idea of character development, which is another key ingredient in a good opera, uh, in an opera that has great dramatic um, uh, effect. Uh, two examples I want to show you from the same scene uh, in Act Three of uh, L'Orfeo. Uh, Perhaps the dramatic highlight of the entire opera is uh, an aria that is sung by Orfeo entitled Possente Spirito. And this is the aria where Monteverdi, that Monteverdi sings as he tries to gain access into Hades. And mind you that there's a rule that says that no living creature is allowed into Hades. So it is through the power of music 
that he tries to gain access. Here again, when you think about Orfeo, we have two aspects of Orfeo. We have Orfeo, the god-like figure. Orfeo, the god of music, the great musical virtuoso. Uh, versus Orfeo, the man. Orfeo, the human being with passions and with uh, shortcomings like all of us do. Um, so in the same scene, you have Monteverdi uses two very different vocal and musical styles to portray and to underscore the two sides of Orfeo's character. Here is um, the first I want to show, and this is the god of music. A lot of ornamentation, a little bit of arrogance. Just look at the text. I am Orpheus. And by the way, notice that it takes Monteverdi 20 seconds to get through just those first three words. Okay, I am Orpheus, who follows Eurydice's steps through these murky deserts where no mortal man has ever trod. So let me just play it, and you will see what I mean here. <laughs> 20 seconds of I am Orpheus. Oh, okay. I am the god. So you get the impression, a lot of ornamentation, very virtuosic. The singers in the room will appreciate how difficult this aria is to sing. I'm looking at Paris there who's nodding. Uh, uh, contrast that. Well, okay, so what happens at the end of that? Does gain access? No. All that effort, eight minutes of virtuosic singing, and it doesn't work. And Sharon says, nope. Sorry, you may not enter Hades. So then he gets really desperate. And, that, and then Orpheus the man emerges. Orpheus the human being emerges. And contrast that with what you just heard. Now, why did I put an arrow here? here? Uh, it's a visual aid to show you that at this point, the music descends as if he is trying to portray his desperation. Uh, and... Then notice when we get to the very last uh, two lines, he repeats, give me back my love three times. And it's very simple. No ornamentation, no great virtuosity. It's just pure emotion. He is distraught. He is heartbroken. And it's, it's Orfeo, the man, the human, emerging and singing to us. Down, down, down. And now, very simple. Rendetemi in your bed. Guess what? That works. That's when he gains access. So we could talk about this dichotomy, this contrast, not only the world of the living and the world of the dead, bright instruments and dark instruments, uh, but Orpheus, the god of music, and Orpheus, the human, with all of the raw emotions that human beings often display. Uh, if you're wondering which recording is out there, uh, well, there's many good recordings of L'Orfeo. This is my favorite. All the excerpts that I played came from this particular CD, in case you had any interest in buying a copy. Uh, very quickly, just for you to keep in mind that we talked about opera, but another work by Monteverdi that is worth 
uh, listening to, if you have a chance, and we've talked about this in my music section, is the Vespers of 1610, which is in many ways considered to be the counterpart, the religious counterpart to Monteverdi's L'Orfeo. There are many points of commonality and many points of uh, uh, intersection between L'Orfeo as an opera and the Vespers of 1610 as a great dramatic religious piece of music. I will stop there. We have a few minutes for questions, so I'll open it up. Could we maybe get the lights? Um, the question is, did Rubens and Monteverdi collaborate while they were both living in Mantua? I don't think so. Uh, I, I have found no evidence of any collaboration. It would be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> uh, but uh, nothing that I have read, that I have, um, that I have studied, has pointed to any collaboration between them. I'm sure they interacted and they got to know each other. But right, and there are records, right. There are records of what Monteverdi was doing, what Rubens was doing, but nothing that anyone has found that shows any interaction between those two. Uh, yes. Uh, the question is, do Monteverdi's later operas show more sophistication and operatic development? Uh, well, first of all, several operas were lost, sadly, and it's the holy grail of musicology. I mean, believe me, you know, if anyone, if any musicologist were ever to find a lost Monteverdi opera, it would be a huge deal. Um, but we do have two more operas by Monteverdi. One is uh, The Return of Ulysses to His Homeland from 1640. And the other is the coronation of Popea from 1643, which is the year when he dies. There is a dramatic uh, change from Orfeo as an early opera um, uh, to um, Popea as uh, a later opera. Yes, there's a great development that takes place, and we don't have time to talk about all that. But suffice it to say that all of the key ingredients that you find in L'Orfeo uh, are perhaps elaborated and further expanded uh, in the two later operas. Mm -hmm. you, you said Ockeghem? Okay, the question is, um, there was the Ockeghem's use of dissonance in the Renaissance. Certainly, I'm not saying that there is no dissonance in the Renaissance, but it's very carefully approached. Uh, it follows very strict rules of counterpoint. So there's a, there's a uh, approach to the dissonance. There's a resolution of the case of the uh, of the dissonance. Uh, with Monteverdi, it's often and we talked about this once before in class. It's often uh, breaking every possible rule of counterpoint. Uh, so it's not approached according to any textbook. Um, you know, textbook. Uh, um, what's the word? Um, yeah, indication, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, first of all, they're not calling it opera. They're calling it drama in musica, uh, drama in music. But yes, no, I think he, he was very much aware, as were the Florentines, uh, Peri and Caccini, very much aware that they were creating something very special, very new. Uh, the first performance of L'Orfeo was for that private gathering that I mentioned, about 100 invited guests. But uh, it was so successful and so well received that there were subsequent performances um, after that. So, and Monteverdi's fame certainly escalated after the performance of L'Orfeo to the point that he started to realize that, you know, I am a very gifted composer. Uh, and Mantua is a little bit uh, too provincial for me. So he started around 1607, 08, 09, he started to look for another job. And he had his eyes on Rome and on Venice, two of the most important musical centers in all of the Western world in those years. And eventually he landed the, the job, the very prestigious job of Maestro di Capella, Capellmeister, at the Basilica St. Mark's, which was a huge coup. Yeah. So, you know. This piece, L'Orfeo, really did a lot to escalate his value and his uh, stance in the musical world. There was another question earlier, I believe, by someone else back here. No? Okay, go ahead. Uh, were there any sets in uh, L'Orfeo or elaborate machinery? Um, no. It was pretty simple. You're thinking of the, of the, for example, the Intermedi from Florence from 1589, which had very elaborate set designs. Nothing like that. Um, there was dance that took place. There were certainly set designs, but nothing that was mechanical or you know, very elaborate, in part because the room was as small as it was. So, Lauren. Uh, 
Oh yes, he was a uh, he was a musician as well as a composer. He was a string player. He was a singer, um, and uh, he would not. There's no evidence that he he performed in L'Orfeo, but he certainly would have performed in other pieces uh, that he composed. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, the question is: Was the dance in L'Orfeo specified in the score? Mind you that that Monteverdi is very specific. When you look at the score of L'Orfeo, there are a lot of indications that we usually do not expect in uh, music of the early 17th century. Uh, but this is a, you know, not only with his use of instruments and the orchestration, but he does indicate those parts of the opera that he wants to have uh, performed uh, as uh, balletti, he calls them, or dance pieces. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe you had a question, and then we'll go up there. Um, the question is on this mic. <laughs> uh, the cross-fertilization between um, theater and drama and uh, opera. A lot, I would say. Um, and it's too bad that Monteverdi and Shakespeare never met each other. But, you know, we had talked about Shakespeare and character development, and, and the same thing happens in music, in, uh, first in Italy and then elsewhere in Europe, certainly in England as well. Uh, so, um, and again, the idea that they're calling opera drama in musica, you know, they think of it primarily as a theater piece that happens to have music. Uh, but it's, you know, drama uh, before it is anything else. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the question is uh, along the lines of uh, pastoral themes and the uh, interaction among various art forms, and yes, absolutely, uh, the pastoral theme is something that you find really uh, um, even much earlier in music and certainly in the visual arts, but it all comes together in the genre of opera in this period, yes. Uh -huh. Final question, then I believe we're out of time, yes. <laughs> is L'Orfeo the first piece of musical theater? Well, you raise a really... Um, Difficult question because even today we debate, you know, what is musical theater versus opera? You know, why is a work by, I don't know, who's your favorite, huh? Someone, Rogers and Hamilton. You know, why is that musical theater and not and not opera? So, it's a good question. I'm not going to answer it because no one really has a good answer to that. But uh, certainly. You can think, you know, especially with L'Orfeo, as someone just uh, was asking, you know, I think it's, it's certainly dramatic action that is sung instead of spoken. Yeah. So thank you all very much, and see you on Monday.